We're going to sort of break it down a little uh, chunk by chunk here. I want to read tonight verses 13 to 16. We're going to be seeing the description of the ark's occupants tonight. If you're following along in that booklet there, uh, verses 13 to 16 show us all those that went into the ark and how God preserved them, why God preserved them, what God was doing. And so we're going to take a look at that. And uh, hopefully tonight we'll be able to finish up chapter 7. We'll see where we get into it. But the Bible says here in verse number 13, <clears throat> In the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. They and every beast after his kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort, and they went in unto Noah and to his ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. So here we find these occupants as they go in, God's hand is upon them. Remember, it was God's hand that had uh, invited Noah into the flood, uh, to into the ark to be preserved from the flood, and now is shutting him into the ark for his protection, for his survival, as well as not just the survival of Noah and his family, and not just some animals, but if God does not do this for Noah, then none of us are here, right? So we've got to understand this. Every person that is alive today goes back to everybody that is on this boat, right? So guess what? Look around. Say howdy, cousin. Right? <laughs> You're looking at a long, long, long lost cousin, I guess, somewhere down the line. But here we find that God has preserved and, and is by His grace, by His mercy, brought this family under this boat by grace, through faith. They have been saved. They have been supplied for everything that they need. It is God's hand that has done all of these things. At the simultaneous time, here's what's happening as we've been talking about the past few weeks. God's hand is preserving one man, his family, and enough animals, male and female, to preserve and make all the life that we see around us today with the billions of people and the billions of billions of animals that are out there in the world today. He's doing this with one hand, preserving them in the midst of a storm, with the other hand, bringing the storm, if you will, bringing the judgment, bringing the, the uh, just judgment upon the unjust and unbelieving world. Now, the retelling of Noah's obedience is not only that he built the ark, but as well it is that he filled it with his family and the animals according to God's instructions is given here. Uh, we find once more that his family gets on as he was told to. We find that every beast God brought to him after its kind, as we've talked about before in the past uh, six chapters of Genesis. This does not necessarily mean every single um, minor species of dog or cat or whatever it might be, but rather this is everything after its kind. This is uh, this male and female of animal has an, everything in their DNA to make everything that we've got today, right? Now, with this, in this boat, it is big enough, large enough, has enough space to hold all the food that is needed for these animals, has enough food to take care of these people that are in there, and it's going, to, as we work through this chapter, it's going to have to take care of them for more than just 40 days and 40 nights. They're going to be on there for a long time. Now, as we continue to, to move through here, we see uh, in verse uh, number 15, they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. They went in, and, and the Lord shut them in. Right and With this, we find God's protection. The Lord shut Noah and the ark for protection from the judgment upon the ungodly and the unbelieving world. 
Now, uh, Kinder here, he talks about God's uh, loving hand. He says, the Lord shut him in. The expression beautifully shows God's uh, fatherly touch at the very brink of judgment. The same care that saw this matter through carries our salvation to its conclusion. And we find, as Philippians tells us, that the God who's begun a good work shall complete it. So the Lord is not merely getting Noah and the animals into a boat to let the boat just go do its thing. God is directing Noah. God is directing the animals. God is directing the boat. God is directing the storm. Much like if we think about Jonah, right? Uh, You say, well, Jonah was running away from God. Well, he was running right into the plan of God, if you really look at the Scripture. And what we find is that God knew and planned and brought about the ship, the storm, the whale, everything. So the Lord knows all that is taking place, and it's all a part even the storms, even the judgment is a part of God's much greater plan. Ultimately, as we've talked about, to bring about the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised seed, to die for our sins, to be raised on the third day, and ultimately to one day come back again to, uh, to have the, uh, the, the earth judged for a time, and then as well to make all things new. And as we've talked about, this time of the flood is picturing what is to come one day down the road. Naguzik talks about this passage, these few verses. says, Noah did not have to shut the door on anyone's salvation. God did it. After the same pattern, it is never our job to disqualify people from salvation. If the door is to be shut, let God shut the door. God kept the door open until the last possible minute, but there came a time when the door had to shut. When the door is open, it is open, but when it is shut, it is shut. Jesus is He who opens, and no one shuts and shuts, and no one opens. Revelation 3, 7. This shows the severity and the seriousness of salvation. You see, now, here's what I absolutely believe. Here's how you know the door's been shut for somebody's salvation. They're no longer living. That's when their last chance is up. Until that day, God's mercy is available. But here's the problem. We don't get the Gospel out to everyone. And we often don't have... I, I don't believe that we have the same urgency that God does when it comes to hearing and to getting the gospel out to people. I believe the Lord cares greatly, deeply, lovingly, compassionately to see that the gospel goes forth. And here's the thing. You and I could look at this and we say, well, God is God and He could do as He pleases and God is so great and so big. He could open up the heavens and with one great sentence and utterance of His voice tell everybody how to be saved and to be able to be into His presence. But He's chosen us to do that. What a privilege. What an honor. What a responsibility. But we also find this. And I believe this. If God did open up and did speak, there would be an awful lot of folks who still wouldn't believe. You know why? Because their hardened hearts are still hardened with sin and unbelief. Jesus talked about this in His own day in the Gospels. He said that, uh, He says, if Moses wasn't good enough for you, the prophets weren't good enough for you to hear, you're not going to hear. Because they had said, well, if, if one comes back from the dead, right? No. Matter of fact, He says, I'm going to come back from the dead. And they still won't believe. Jesus has raised from the dead and there are folks that still yet don't believe. We've got more evidence for Jesus' resurrection than we do that George Washington was president. Now, we think that's a silly comparison, but the truth is the truth. right? Let me, let's break this down. Any of y'all ever seen George Washington in the flesh? Anybody ride across the Delaware with him? No? Well, where'd you learn he did all that? You were taught that, weren't you? I was taught that out of a history book in my elementary school from the time I can remember. 
But you know something? My history book is pretty fallible. You know why? God didn't write it. A whole bunch of people wrote it. And nowadays, a history book, I'd be even more frightful of it than it was 15 years ago. The point is this. The evidence is there. Christ has not only died and risen, but we find that He has spoken a greater word than the heavens opening. He left the glory of heaven, came to this world, put on flesh, and He spoke. He lived, He breathed, He walked, He talked, He ate, He bled, He died, He was raised up so that all men would be drawn unto Him. But the problem is, we don't do enough fishing, right? And we've got to understand this. We look at like what Guzik is saying here. We're not looking at this as some sort of terrible mentality of, well, you know, not everyone's going to get saved, so what can we do about it? We can't do much about it, right? So it's not worth trying. It's not the case at all. As a matter of fact, here's the, here's the thing. We should believe the gospel and proclaim the gospel as if everyone that does hear it is going to hear and believe. Why would we not? Why would we go ahead and sell God short on what He's able to do? And then get mad at Him when eventually He does close the door. The door will be closed upon the world and the door will be closed upon individuals in the moment that they leave this world and eternity is a breath away. And we know this. We're reminded of this all the time. But here we find that it is the hand of God alone that opens the door and closes the door of all things. His beckoning hand will one day close the door of judgment and wrath. Now notice this in verse 16. And as we've talked about this, and we'll continue on tonight. Just as God shuts in Noah and protects Noah, the same hand not only closes Noah in and protects Noah, but shuts everyone out. And everyone outside of that door now is going to face absolute wrath and destruction. There's not going to be another chance for them. They've had 120 years of hearing the word preached by Noah. You want to, I tell you, we go, well, how could they have all heard? News travels pretty quick, doesn't it? Anybody have the power outage today? Anybody? The great power outage of 2023 lasted about four hours, five hours, maybe somewhere in there. Now, here's what happened. We noticed this. You know what the first thing that most people do they, that the power cuts off? None of y'all did this. We checked already. <laughs> but they go on Facebook and they say, did you lose power? Everybody else out there, right? Thinking if you're, if you're on Facebook, you apparently got, got something to burn some battery on, but... But that's the first thing they do. Who all lost power? Where did you lose power? Why did you lose power? Just ride it out, right? We go out, the news travels pretty quick, and then you check back about 20 minutes later, and there's screenshots from Appalachian Power, and they're putting out this and that about going, well, this is what happened, this is how long we're expecting. And now, within 20 minutes, the thousands of people that have lost power can pretty much have a, an assurance about when it's going to come out, when the power's going to come back on. Now, that's pretty nice. All this happened today within a matter of about six hours. From the time that it got lost, about 30 minutes later, an estimated time of it coming back, and by the time it was supposed to come back, I think just about everybody had it back. Now imagine we've got 120 years of one crazy man building a boat with his boys, and he's preaching repentance and faith and to get on this boat lest ye perish. You reckon, considering it has not rained, it has not been a worldwide flood before, do you think that news is going to travel pretty quick? I think so. You know how I knew, tra uh, knew most of my news growing up as a kid? 
I would hold mom's buggy when we were in food line. And as she's putting stuff up, and that's how I learned to do all that whole, whole thing. You, do, you put stuff together like it's supposed to. It helps out the bagger and all that stuff. But here, here's what I would look at. Y'all remember them? They don't, I don't think they sell them no more. There was little, little books like this. It always had them tabloids. Y'all remember those? It has to add Bigfoot sighting at the White House. I'm eight years old. I'm thinking, oh my word. Bigfoot done got all the way. Did you hear that, Mom? Bigfoot made it to the White House. Loch Ness Monsters in Smith Mountain Lake, right? Whatever it might be. Now, one of those might be true. Right? It's a coin toss. I don't know. But word would travel quick. It sparked your interest, and it'll travel quick. Now, here's the thing. In a Baptist church, if you want something to spread real quick, make sure it's bad, right? Make a bad casserole or say something bad, wear something bad, right? And it'll go quick, won't it? Word goes quickly. It did in their day. And as we're going to see tonight, as we look forward in this, God is not unjust in anything that He does. Matter of fact, God would be unjust if He left that door open and never brought the rain. God would have been unrighteous and unholy and even unloving if He leaves the door open and the rain never comes. You know why? Because He would have batted an eye at the world's sin and the sin was great. So much so that he says in chapter 6 that the very thoughts of their imagination was only evil continually. He'd be unjust if the door stayed open. People get upset about the reality of hell. Jesus preached an awful lot about hell. Jesus described hell. Jesus preached it not just as if it was a real place, but He preached it because it is a real place. So did John the Baptist. So did every preacher before during Jesus' day, and after, because these truths matter. The difference between those that died the moment the, the rain came and those that were in the ark was about this much wood. But the distance was even further. But it was all found right here in an unbelieving heart. That's what kept them off the boat. Not God's mercy or grace or injustice. None of that. No. Their unbelieving heart kept them off the boat. That door had been open a long time. Now with this, we continue on here in verse 17. There's going to be a sort of a transition here from those inside the boat, the safety of, of the ark pointing to Christ, and those who aren't. It says, And the flood was forty days upon the earth, and the water increased. And bear up the ark, and it was lift above the earth. And listen to this language, right, as we're going. Listen to this. Lift it up above the earth. So far in verse 17, let me ask you this. Do you think it's a local flood or a worldwide flood? Worldwide. Do you think that it is a lot of water or a little bit of water? A whole lot. Verse 18. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth. And the ark went upon the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth. And all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. And all the flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beasts and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man." All in whose nostrils was the breath of life, 
of all that was in the dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and creeping things and the fowl of the heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive and they that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth in hundred and fifty days. We got it raining forty days and forty nights and it's staying at its level. 150 days. That's rough. That's a lot of water. That's a great big old flood. Now the description here of the flood is seen in verse 17 through 20. Hamilton writes here, and I wanted to point this out, as the waters rise in verses 17 and 24, verses 13 to 16 focus on the action inside the ark, while verses 17 to 24 focus outside the ark. To be outside the ark is akin to being outside the garden. Salvation inside the ark is total. Destruction outside the ark is total. So just as Noah is safe and sound inside the ark, outside you can bet your bottom dollar that there is none safe whatsoever. There's no safe place to go. There's no cave deep enough. There's no hole deep enough. There's no mountain high enough. You say, how's there no mountain high enough? He clearly says the water goes up and above every hill, every mountain. There's nothing that is left untouched by the flood. Much like this, if we remember, in Genesis chapter 3, what all was affected by Adam's sin? Was it just him and Eve? It is me and you. Matter of fact, it was every living thing that moment began to decay, to die, to live as it was not supposed to live. Even then, the earth beginning to groan and to look forward to that day of redemption where all things will be made right and new. We can rest assured with this that just is as salvation is described and, and seen here as being real. So is the destruction. It is just as real, but it is just as violent. Just as safe and as comfy as Noah is kept in the hand of God in the ark, everyone outside is without hope. Now with this, seeing the language of this passage, it is very clear that this is a worldwide flood. We can ask ourselves a couple questions even. Why would such a ship and a gathering of supplies be needed if it was only a local flood? Now, I noticed when we went to the beach this past weekend for the wedding and to perform it and everything, as you get close to the coast, I start noticing things, and you probably have too if you've gone to the coast. You start noticing signs that say hurricane evacuation signs. Anyone ever seen those, right? Hurricane evacuation route, something like that of that nature. Now, why do they have that? Well, it's not for us who are going to the coast. It's for those leaving the coast. Why is that? Because locally, it's going to flood in that area if that, if that hurricane hits, isn't it? Sometimes that flood is absolutely catastrophic, and sometimes it's not too bad. depends on how it skirts or goes in and about. depends upon the strength of the storm and all that. Nevertheless, you know how we know that those are localized floods? Because it can be an absolute uh, Category 5 hurricane on the tip of Florida, and you and I, won't get nothing. Even if, the, even if the rain comes here, we might have a little bit, but you know what? They're going to have a whole localized flood. It won't be all over the world, will it? Now, there might be a whole region that gets rain from it, but not everyone's getting the flood. The reason why we point this out is because as we look at this, if this was merely, and the reason why we bring this up is there are many liberal theologians today, many Bible colleges are, are teaching this, many churches are teaching this, Either one, that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are just a fable or a myth, or they don't matter, right? All those options are garbage. 
Or, here's what's happening with this. What they're doing is they're simply saying, well, a flood did happen, but it was just a local flood in Noah's region. If it was just a local flood in Noah's region, why would he need everything that God brings to him? Why would it be near as important? Why? It wouldn't be. It would just simply be a local flood. As a matter of fact, Noah wouldn't even need a boat for a local flood. Go to the mountains, Noah. Leave here. If you were told in 120 years, Hillsville is going to be 100 foot underwater. Well, that just means that you've got to get out of Hillsville, don't you? And you've got 120 years to do it, and by my clock, I'm not going to be here in 120 years, more than likely. So you and I, we look, we go, if it's going to be a local flood, all I've got to do is get to high ground. There was no high ground. He had nowhere to go. Phillips writes, the language of the narrative certainly embraces the idea of a whole earth was submerged beneath the judgment waters. We do not know to what extent the antediluvian population had overspread the planet, but the flood had to have been universal. Now, I want to notice this as well. I wrote down a few words in this passage, 17 to 24. You can write them, underline them if you want to, if you're interested in them. But I thought these words helped to prove the fact that this was a worldwide universal flood. First of all, the word earth. Y'all know where the earth is? Well, that's here in Carroll County and everywhere else in the world. This is the entire earth, right? This isn't talking about a county or a region. Now you say, well, what if it was a county or a region? Well, then it'd say the region, not the earth. When we talk about, where'd Abraham come from? The Ur of the earth? <laughs> no, Ur of the Chaldees. Why? Because that was the region he come from. Where was he going? Where was... Uh, where were the Israelites leaving Egypt, which is his own place, and going to the promised A separate place altogether, right? Not just the earth. How about this? I like this one. The, in verse 19 it says, The waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven. Now, I've noticed this, and, and you all know this too if you've lived here any time, you can sit here actually in this church parking lot. If you go over here where the church vans are, you can look this way and you can see rain. And you can look over there and see sunshine. Some days you can look over there and see rain and look over there and see sunshine, right? You know why that is? Because that's just how it is. You can have a storm in one section and you can know this, it's not storming under the whole heaven. It's storming under that part of the heaven, right? The whole heaven means the whole heaven. That's everywhere. Meaning there was no place that you can go that is not consumed by it. How about this phrase? All flesh. Even just the word all. All still does mean all. Now here the idea of all flesh, it's that everything. There's even the phrase every living creature. That means every living creature. Not some living creature creatures, most living creatures, or only regional living creatures, every living creature, everything that even has breath in it, upon the face of it all, right? Upon the face of it all. And how about the word only? You get down to verse 23, and Noah only remained alive and they that were with him in the ark. That's people and animals. That means they're the only ones left. Eight people, all the animals, everyone else, gone. 
clearly a worldwide flood. Sorensen writes, The waters bear up the ark, and it was lift above the earth. And the ark went above the face of the waters. The words translated as hills and mountains are the same words. Several comments are in order. It is likely that the mountains of the earth prior to the flood were considerably lower dimension than after. As we've talked about, the world before the flood is totally different than the world after the flood. Matter of fact, we don't know what it looks like. Truthfully. We don't have maps of it. There were no geological, geographical maps of these things. Think about this. Maps from 100 years ago of Carroll County or even the United States have changed drastically, haven't they? Right? Uh, Lewis and Clark's first map looked a lot different than what we got today. Now you can go on Google and you can pinpoint anywhere and even get a street view. Right? I mean, it's kind of frightening to be honest with you. And what we see is that the world has changed literally not just in how we map out things, but even in the map itself because now we have much more accuracy in these things. But guess what? The world literally changed top to bottom this time. He says, uh, evidently as the immense quantities of waters began to rest upon the earth, the weak places in the earth's crust, perhaps where the great fountains of the deep had previously been, were depressed by the weight of the water. This undoubtedly would have caused other places on the planet to be thrust upward, producing not only new continents, but new mountain ranges as well. However, apparently the original mountains were not as high. 20 to 15 cubits upward did not prevail the wa- uh, did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered whatever their height however right regardless of how high how low worldwide flood here and we're talking about the world changing you can imagine this everything that was high became low everything that was low became high he goes on and he says that again would have enabled the ark to pass over them consuming the draft of the ark was a little less than its overall height of 30 cubits moreover what is clearly evident is that the entire earth was inundated at least for the initial portion of the flood. The entire surface of the earth was covered by water until the present ocean beds were depressed and the new continent and mountains were thrust upward, allowing the massive amount of wa- uh, allowing the massive amounts of water to flow downward into the new ocean beds. The hydraulic power of the draining of the waters from the continents and higher elevations undoubtedly was the most powerful dynamic in the history of the earth, short of the creation itself. Powerful hydraulic forces of the continents draining into the oceans largely shape the topography and geography of the planet as we know it today. Now, I remember being in ninth grade earth science, and of course, by that point, they've already been uh, throwing evolution down your throat and billions of years and millions of years of the earth and us just coming out by chance. And somehow, every molecule in the earth, in its perfect order, every atom together, everything made that is made, Somehow, all by chance. I remember they were talking so much, though, by the time we, you know, we're getting all these great details in high school, and they're talking more and more, though, about how at one point the earth looked one way, and now it looks totally different because there was some sort of major earth-shattering event. Now, what they all said was there had to have been just a big old great big meteor shower, and that's what caused all these continents, planets, uh, the, the moon itself, uh, uh, perhaps all the mountains and valleys and everything else, and that's what changed everything, and that's what killed everything else. Well, that's one theory. Or we could just look at what God told us happened. God's pretty clear about how it happened. As a matter of fact, you can study. I encourage you, go on Answers in Genesis. If you've got website, get their books. Go to the ark. And you'll have so much of your eyes open to just to figure out and to look and to see clearly and plainly. 
The world can make up everything that they want to to say how all these things came about. And clearly the answer still to this day, after thousands of years, after searching the Bible, after searching the earth itself, every bit of geography, topography, oceanography, you name it, the only answer is God. God has done this with His hand. God formed it, fashioned it, made it. He spoke it into existence. It is He who shut Noah in. It is He who kept others out who had remained unbelieving. It is He who brought judgment itself. It is He even, not even just the waters and the rain, but it is He Himself who raised the mountains and lowered the valleys and burst open the, the depths of the deep to bring forth these fountains of waters to destroy all flesh. Why? Is it because He got angry and just flew off the handle? No. As a matter of fact, what we find it's because of sin. And it's God's character that had to deal with this sin. Verses 21 and 24, we see the destruction of the flood, and it is every living thing, every living substance. Everything is destroyed and flattened like that. Fossils are made. A massive amount of everything that we see today is what used to be gone. What is here, made. God's Word is fulfilled and every living thing outside of the ark is destroyed. He had said this back in Genesis 6.13 and chapter 7, verse 4. You want to know what Noah was probably adding to his sermon and preaching? Everyone here will die unless you get on this boat. And they laughed. See, how do we know they laughed? Well, Jesus talked about the days of Noah that they kept on getting hitched and drinking and having a good old time and living their life from day to day as they just thought it was always going to be this way. Nothing's ever happened. Nothing's going to happen. That's just crazy old Noah. It sounds pretty familiar how most Christians are viewed today. Well, that's just crazy old Christian down the road or that's just grandma, right? That's just grandpa. That's just old uncle. That's just whoever, right? This is what God has said. There's a contrast between those that survive in the ark and those that perish outside of it. The difference is not just their location, but their life that they lived. Noah and those in the ark survived by grace through faith in the Word and work of God. All those that were outside of the ark were guilty before God and chose to live in their sin instead of the safety of the ark that had been given and that had been preached. Noah obeyed when the world rebelled against God. Tonight, I want to end with this. Earlier this week, uh, someone reached out to me with, with a question. I'm thankful that they did because it fits perfect with tonight. And I wanted to look at some of the passages that I'd sent them. Romans answers this very clearly. Here's what happens to everybody. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. All have sinned. All will die. We're born in sin. Romans 1 talks about this. It begins with Paul saying to all those who are not Jewish, he says, you're guilty. Then in chapter 2, he says, oh, to you, those that were Jewish or were keeping the law, guess what? You're guilty too, if not even worse, because you had all this revelation and you still flubbed it up. Then he gets into chapter 3 and he says, guess what? Everybody, don't matter who you are, what you're like, where you're from, you are guilty. And there's only one answer, and it's Christ. 
Romans chapter 1, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. Meaning they've seen. You look around this world. Clearly, God made this. As a matter of fact, there is quite the trend right now which is both exciting and somewhat alarming because, unfortunately, many of them are just running to theistic evolution or deism, which is not salvation. But many scientists today are realizing after every discovery, and the longer that they're in it, going, as they look at the world, there is a clear designer. But that's not salvation. Right? It is good that you've seen that. That should be natural. Matter of fact, you can go into a, a pagan village in the middle of nowhere across in another continent. You know what you'll find? They believe that there is a Creator. But that is not salvation. God goes on to say here, for the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. This is the tough thing. Everyone that was not on that boat that day that the waters came was without excuse. Everyone that is alive today and has been alive since is without excuse. However, every Christian that does not share the Gospel is not without excuse. We've got no excuse. Right? He goes on, he says, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination, their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Be careful of intellect and academia. I'm not telling you not to read a book. As a matter of fact, if anyone's going to tell you to read a book, that's probably me telling you to read a book. You ought to be educated. You ought to use the brain, the logic that God has given you. Exercise it. Study. Read a dictionary, a thesaurus. Learn to expand your vocabulary, your imagination, the whole nine yards. Use what God has given you. But don't rely on your senses. Don't rely on your emotions. Don't rely on your intellect because intellect will not save alone. Matter of fact, what it often does is it puffs us up and we actually, the smartest of us, become nothing more than fools. He says, They change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, into birds and the four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. What we're finding now in this is God is getting into what is going to be called the reprobate mind. God is giving them over to their sin. That's a frightening thing. Sin is the cause of judgment. And oftentimes, God's judgment is allowing one to go further into sin as the consequence. Sin is both the cause and the consequence here in this reprobate mind and in this reprobate world of which we live. He says, You change the truth of God into a lie, worship the, and serve the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving themselves that recumbents of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, meaning it was there, but they didn't like it. Why? Because the darkness hates the light. God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. A reprobate mind not only is given over to sin, 
but it no longer processes good, evil, bad, right, wrong, left, right, up, down. All logic is out the window. We're living in a world that seems awful reprobate, don't you think? It says, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. Inventing evil things, right? Disobedient to parents without understanding, covenant breakers without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Meaning they love their sin. And they love their sinful condition. It's a frightening thing to get in this place. But then later on, in chapter 2, For when the Gentiles, verse 14, which have not the law, do by nature the things contain the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts. The moral law of God written upon their hearts. You don't have to teach children to lie. You don't have to teach. You could go to just about any tribe in the world and you know what you're going to find? They agree that you should not steal and you should not kill. You should not do these things. Why? Is it because they've read our Constitution or our law books? No. It's because it is written upon their heart. It says their conscience also bearing witness in their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. And in chapter 3, he goes on to say, if, you drew, if you're Jewish and you don't keep the law, he's, you're just as wicked. You're no better than the Gentile that you seem to hate so badly and that you think is so awful. He gets into verse 9 and he says, What then? Are we better than they? No and no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understand. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher with their tongues. They have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery, and their ways in the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the problem of Noah's day. It's the problem of our day, and it's going to get worse. Why? Because God said it would. Sadly, that's the reality. Now with this, we've got to understand though, all are guilty before God. Not one person that died in that flood didn't deserve it. But everyone that survived, they didn't deserve it either. Noah found grace. That's unmerited favor. A gift of God. The difference between Noah and everybody else is that Noah believed God. That's faith. Faith then leads to obedience. What you and I have got to understand is the difference between you and me and the sinner on the street is God's grace and us simply trusting in that free gift that He has given but we've got to understand that there is a world out there that has not heard the name of Jesus Christ. They have not heard about the boat. And the flood is coming. We've got to see the great need of our day to proclaim the truth of God's Word and to do so with love 
compassion and the grace of God upon our lips, written upon our hearts. May our hearts be moved by passages like this to not simply go, well, they had it coming, but to rather look and go, I deserve to be outside of the boat. It's by God's grace I'm in this boat, and I'd better be telling everybody, get in because this door is going to close. And we don't know when that door will close, but I do know this, it will close. It will be a frightening and a horrific day for everyone that it closes to. But until that day, may we have hearts of love that are unwilling to see anyone missing the boat. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. We thank You for this time. We're grateful for Your Word. God, I pray that You would allow each one of us, God, to care about the Gospel, to care about lost souls as You do. Lord, we do pray that we'd be obedient to You in all things, that we'd be faithful in all things, and Lord, that You'd be glorified in our hearts and our lives. Lord, we thank You for this time. We pray that You would prepare our hearts, Lord, as a church, just to continue to be used of You, and Lord, to continue to watch as You guide, direct us, and lead us in Your will and Your way. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a blessed rest of your week. And Lord willing, we'll see you guys Sunday morning.